0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that makes this Stuff You Should Know, right? That's right. How you doing? I am well, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's lovely here in Atlanta. It is. It's like 75 degrees. Beautiful. It's like San Diego moved here. Yeah. Hey, you hear that music, Josh? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Ben Lee, who okay. we'll meet
2: later, right? That's right. I could listen to that stuff all day, man, that, that cello music. Mm-hmm. Appalachian. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cello. I love it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> let's get into this one. All right, let's do it. Uh, this is the shortest intro ever. Okay. Okay, but it's 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 telling. It's a good one. And you would think that I would have had it ready since it's the intro, you know? Yeah, that's all right. But I like to play things fast and loose, kind of by the seat of my pants. And I also <laughs> like to see how much time I can fill up while I look for things, right? Yeah. Like I've done You've got just it, then. But Chuck, I'm going to give you a shocking statistic.
2: There are going to be a lot of
1: those in this one. In the great state of West Virginia, mm-hmm. which is next to Virginia, just west of it, though, Okay. Um, since 1979... The number of employed miners in that state, and mining is the number one industry in West Virginia. Yes, yeah, coal mine country. The the number of miners um, in since 1979 in that state has declined from 60,000 to 22,000, according to the state's Senator Robert
2: Byrd. But m- coal mining itself has dramatically increased over that time, so how do you explain that?
1: Well, as a matter of fact, the whole podcast that we're about to do explains it very clearly. Yes. Uh, a, a type of mining process called mountaintop removal mining. Yeah. Uh, or strip mining. Well, it's a type of strip mining. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. one person called it strip mining on steroids. Yeah. Um, is very much responsible for the, um, the ability for coal mining to just go through the roof in Appalachia mm-hmm. while requiring fewer and fewer people. Right. So while coal has has increased unemployment has increased as well. Yeah, and I guess let's just get right into it because this just one is chock full of stats and stories, and this is an unusual podcast for us.
2: And by the way, this one is officially yours. <laughs> Why are you giving this one to me? He,
1: this you did the you did the legwork for this one.
2: Yeah, and we should add at the end of this uh, podcast we're going to have a uh, interview with in uh, our first musical guest ever, with singer, songwriter, and cello player. Ben So Lee, mm-hmm. who is an activist for, uh, against mountaintop removal coal mining. And, uh, it's on, you know, the Sub Pop label with his music. And he's going to interview with us and play a song. And it's going to be pretty cool. So stick around.
1: Yes. Don't go anywhere. Yes. In the middle of the podcast. All right. So let's get into it. So, um, Chuck, traditionally, when you think of mining, you think of basically a hole in the side of the mountain held up with timbers. Right. That, um, men covered in coal dust are going into with pickaxes and headlamps. Right. An extremely dangerous um, job. Yeah. But a a, a job that's traditionally um, been able to support families.
2: Yes. Long has its roots in Appalachia.
1: Right. Um, this is a totally different kind of mining, mountaintop removal mining, is where in traditional mining you bore into the mountain. With mountaintop removal mining, you blow the top off of the mountain. To expose the coal seam rather than digging in to get it.
2: Yeah, coal seams run uh, horizontally through a mountain. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what happens is, and this is the how it works portion. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing how they do this. Yeah. And even Ben has told me it's pretty amazing. Even though he thinks it's an awful practice, it's pretty amazing nonetheless. Sure. They uh, clear cut the forest, they scrape away the topsoil, lumber, uh, herbs, all that stuff. Herbs? Herbs, yeah. <laughs> wildlife uh, and habitat. Uh, the wildlife habitat is destroyed. Vegetation is destroyed. And well, then, well,
1: in in their defense, they usually, customarily, they send a guy in with a machine gun who just fires into the air That's for like really? a full day, and then he comes down the mountain. <laughs> then they start clear cutting.
2: So they do all this. Once they've done all that, they blow up the top of the mountain as much as eight hundred to a thousand feet. I've seen. Yeah. the mountain is just gone that's why they call it removal yeah and it's flattened out and it looks like a barren moonscape instead of a forest and a mountain
1: yeah that's the uh, that's the term that's used by just about anybody who has anything to do with either um uh, uh, supporting or opposing coal mining mountaintop coal mining mm-hmm. I, it, moonscape is the word that everyone always uses right. that's what I was trying to get out uh, of.
2: from that point, um they have these big shovels that come and dig into the soil, uh, haul that stuff away into the uh, valleys nearby.
1: yeah, because it's not like this stuff disintegrates this this um this thing that's called overburdened by the mining yeah. industry, which is you know rock, soil, dirt, trees, land yeah, yeah um it, it, like it doesn't just evaporate, you have to get rid of it, yeah,
2: got to put it somewhere and then a uh, something called a drag line. Which is one of the more impressive machines I've ever seen. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, how big are these things? They they said somewhere As twenty could, stories.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, they weigh up to eight million pounds. Yeah, and apparently they're they're um yeah. So uh, you saw that picture. Yeah, it looks like an oil rig on like tracks. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
2: So the dragline comes in to expose the coil, uh, digs into the rock, um, these machines scoop out the coal. Uh, the the machines that scoop out the coal.
1: Yeah, their buckets can hold up to twenty compact-sized cars. Wow, that's large. These are massive operations,
2: and the result of this is uh, the narrow valleys have been filled. It's called valley fill. And uh, one, one, we got a bunch of stats. Here's one: uh, coal companies have buried more than twelve hundred miles of headwaters and streams. Rivers and streams buried underneath the stuff, gone forever. Yeah, with the overburden. Remember the stuff that they blew
1: the top of the mountain off of? Yes. And they have to get rid of it. There's two ways to do it. One, you truck it off of the mountain in dump trucks, which is done, but it's also extremely expensive and time consuming. Right. Or you move bulldozers up there and you push the overburden into the valley below. Right. In the in typically in a valley, there's going to be some sort of stream, water supply, people ecosystem, live, people living there. Yeah, and um. If you have a permit, if you apply for a valley fill permit, um you you can you're usually granted one and you just push that stuff into the valley and then start getting to the
2: coal. Right. And so that's um there there's a lot of problems with this and we're going to try and hit on all of them the myriad issues. It's not one You think things. we could just stop right here? <laughs> we probably could. Uh another one of the issues is something uh when they wash the coal. Yeah. It's called uh the result of of the the wash is what they end up with, it's called coal slurry. Right,
1: and you wash coal because um, coal comes with a lot of other uh, organic and in- inorganic toxins, yeah. metals, compounds um, like nickel, cadmium, mercury that keep it from burning as well. Right. Yeah, and they're, there's they're chemicals, non-combustible. And
2: there's chemicals added to the wash as well. Right. Which end up in the coal slurry ponds.
1: Right. So you're 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 washing it for market, but this water's got to go somewhere, and it's extremely toxic. Um, mercury alone would make it extremely toxic. All right. these other heavy metals just make it even worse. So you uh, either inject them into old mines, old abandoned mines, is one one thing that yeah. they do with coal slurry, uh-huh. or you wash them into holding ponds, which are basically earthen dams built into the side of the mountain. Yeah, which can be precarious, as we'll find out. Yeah,
2: and if you have seen coal slurry, I mean, just type it into Google Images. It looks like, uh, like soupy, um black sludge yeah, is about the best comparison I can make. Sure. So these ponds um, one of these actually uh, busted the dam broken in, in 1972 uh, in West Virginia at Buffalo Creek and 132 million gallons of this stuff rushed through the valley, killed 125 people, injured 1100 and 4000 people were left homeless and these by and large are very poor people which is one of the keys here that we're going to keep hitting on.
1: Yeah. I think Wise County, West Virginia, the, um, the average income is like 18000 for a family, something like that.
2: Yeah, graduation rate is about 60%, and the poverty level is exactly what it was during the, uh, was it Eisenhower? I think so. Eisenhower administration, when he went there and said, we have to end poverty in West Virginia, it's the same, 30%. Oh, LBJ. Yeah, Johnson, sorry. Yeah.
1: Um, so... Once this whole operation's done, uh, there may be more than one seam, and there's different ways to get into it. Um, like, you can uh, dig in from the side, high wall mining, mm-hmm. or you can blow the top off the mountain, or you can do both. Right. But once the mountain's exhausted, and these are massive sites. There's one in uh, Virginia, I believe, that's like 35,000 acres. Yeah. Which That's one site. That, yeah, that's just one mining yeah. operation. Or you could also call it one former mountain. Um when when time was, when you left, that was that. You you got your coal and you got out of there and the mining operation was abandoned. Right. Um, nowadays, you are supposed to, most, most mountaintop removal permits uh, come with uh, a, an addendum that you have to do some sort of reclamation. And the reclamation process typically is supposed to involve basically piling r- rock and stuff back up, um, regrowing this area and um, trying to basically simulate a mountain again.
2: Yeah, and then 1977 was when that was first introduced, the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act established standards. uh, They said back then that the goal was just to get grass to grow, anything to grow. Right. And reclamation is a good thing in theory, but one of the the knocks that um, activists like to point out is that what happens on paper isn't always what happens in reality. Mm -hmm. And there's been studies that show that the soil is still not the same. Decades later, uh, it's just not the same. You can't make it what it was. Right. Um, there is one sterling
1: uh, example of what can be done. It's called the Powell River Project. Yes. So the Powell River Project is um, in Virginia, I believe. And it's 1,100 acres. It's a former um, mining site. Um it, that was, it's just a leveled mountaintop and some care was given to it and now it is basically a wildlife preserve. Um, it has strawberries and blueberries growing on it and sugar maples and cattle is grazing on the turf. Um, the wildlife that's come back are screech and barred owls, coyote, bear, turkey. Um, they're basically
2: this, this, Mountain is getting back to nature, right? Yeah, primarily financed by the coal industry. Yes, must say. So, Got to say that. Um, and I think the deal is if everything went down like it's going down at Powell River, there would be fewer issues. But it, that's not the case, unfortunately. Right. That's just a sterling example of what could be done.
1: Well, this is what happens when you spend, like, decades and... Lots of money on this one particular site. For the most case, I think you told me that they just like throw some grass seed down over the old site, and that's that. Right. And, um, we, I guess we'll, we should probably start now talking about the environmental impact. There's basically two ways, um, you can, you can classify the impacts that this has. Three ways. One, economic, which looks like it should be good, right? But if you look at the um, rates of unemployment and the, the continuous poverty in Appalachia, yeah. um, you'll actually see that it's not so great, the economic impact, um, the uh, environmental impact, and then the human impact. So let's talk about environment. We were talking about coal slurry, right? Yes. You have to put that coal slurry somewhere. The earthen dam, like you said, um, at Buffalo Creek in 1972 collapsed spilled 132 million gallons, and killed 125 people,
2: right? That's right. In 2000 in Kentucky, uh, there was another dam uh, break. Uh, 250 million gallons of sludge uh, flowed into uh, the uh, tug fork of the Big Sandy River yeah. and affected streams and rivers up to 100 miles away. More than a million fish and other wildlife died one of the biggest environmental disasters in this country's history mm-hmm. and a lot of people probably never heard of it.
1: Uh yeah, it's uh, apparently the um the areas of exposure uh was 20 times that of the um Exxon Valdez disaster.
2: Yeah, and I believe it was either this one or the other one um one of the coal company heads called it because heavy rains is what eventually caused the dam to break on top of the slurry, called it an act of god.
1: Yeah and i believe that's how it was left
2: so sort of washing our hands of it it was cuz the heavy rains and you know that's what happened
1: so uh, you also mentioned valley fill um where streams have been affected just by being buried which means no more
2: stream i got right? a stat for you there okay 6700 valley fill permits in yeah. the united states have since been since 1985 yeah 6700 times this has happened
1: actually i think it's more than that. i think it's um like in the 7200s, because that oh, really? stat was between 85 and 2001. Oh, okay. And we found another one, Chuck, that's, um, there's been about 500 or so from 2001 to 2008.
2: Yeah, things have really ramped up here in the last decade. Yeah, As so, far as MTR goes.
1: So, um, the, back to the streams as well, uh, apparently there was this, um, this, uh, study in science where, um, 12 environmental science. Scientists got in, together. In Science Magazine, you say. Yes, I should. You know, in Science. <laughs> in, in January, last, this past January, no, January of 2010, 12 environmental scientists got together and did a survey of the literature of, uh, on the environmental impact of mountaintop, um, removal mining. Yeah. And, um, the valleys, you said, I think something like 1,200 miles of, of valley, or valley streams and headwaters yeah. have been affected. Um, well, the, these, these guys sampled, water in 73 of 78 streams, um, or they they did a study on this, and found that um, 73 of the 78 streams they sampled uh, had deformed fish carrying toxic levels of selenium, which is a heavy metal, which is not good. Um, And if your fish is deformed, that's not good in general.
2: Yeah, the Simpsons uh, classic episode of Blinky. Sure. How many eyes was it? Three eyes? Three eyes. Almost said four. We would have heard it about that.
1: Um, Drinking water is another problem because the coal slurry; these earthen dams are a temporary solution uh, to begin with, Um, but they can leak, and that coal slurry can enter drinking water.
2: Yeah, and you know, uh, just to recap real quick, though, on um, the reclamation—that I did find that study uh, from earlier. The study said that 15 years after a mountaintop was leveled at this one site, trees had still not regrown because they just can't make the soil like it used to be. And uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and that's for the land, when it comes to the streams, the Army Corps of Engineers said, under oath in their testimony, um, that there is not a successful stream creation project in conjunction with this.
1: Yeah, or they don't know of one.
2: Yeah, like basically, all right, we can try and reform the mountains to a a rough assemblance of what it once was, (laughs) but you can't just make new streams, and we haven't found out a way to do that.
1: It's kind of like um, taking a sword and severing someone's head. And then just kind of balancing it back on the neck again. <laughs> yeah, sadly. like that's yeah, right. it's there, but it's not really working any longer,
2: right? Yeah, so that's some of the environmental. You're also talking about the, uh, the it's hum- in the drinking water.
1: It, it is, um, which kind of is it straddles um, the um, environmental and the human impacts. Um, there are people in this literature that we've been um, researching for this podcast whose families have lived in these areas for like 230 years or so, right? Like yes. These are straight-up Appalachian folk. Oh, yeah. Right? Hillbillies. They call themselves hillbillies. And um, the hillbillies have been there for a while, and before, I guess, it was probably a very quiet place. But, as we've mentioned, with mountaintop removal mining, explosives are a major part of it. <laughs> big, big so, thing. when you blow the top off of a mountain, first of all, it takes a lot of explosives. It's very loud. Um, apparently... In 2003, 67% of all explosives produced in the U.S. were consumed by the coal industry. Yeah. And in West Virginia alone, that figure led to an estimated 3 million pounds of explosives being used a day. Yeah. A day to Mm -hmm. blow up mountains. People live on these mountains still. Right. The same mountains that they're blowing up. Yeah, in the valleys. So you've got the noise. You have a very dangerous condition called fly rock. Yeah. Which is exactly what it sounds like when you blow a mountaintop up. Rock flies everywhere, and if somebody's living there, it um, can go into their house and kill them.
2: Yeah, and that was the case in uh, 2004 at 2.30 in the morning, uh bulldozer operating without a permit. At two, Again, 2.30 in the morning, yeah. this bulldozer was working a mine site. Without a permit, it dislodged a 1,000-pound boulder, rolled 200 feet down, and crushed 3-year-old uh, Jeremy Davidson in mm-hmm. his bed.
1: Who was sleeping at the time, yeah.
2: And the company was fined $15,000 for that.
1: For gross negligence.
2: Yeah, so I don't even have a comment on that. Yeah, We'll just leave that to the listeners. Um, I, 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 the, um... I have some more deaths here, if you want to be dark for another moment. Sure. Uh, in West Virginia, 14 people drowned in the last three years because of uh, floods and mudslides. In Kentucky, 50 people have been killed and 500 injured over the last five years uh, by coal trucks uh, that were illegally overloaded. And uh, on the flooding thing, I think they said that in this one spot in West Virginia, that there were three what they call a a thousand year flood or a hundred year flood yeah. in ten days. Yeah, <laughs> three hundred year floods in ten days in this one region. Yes, that's not supposed to happen.
1: No, um, and you know you're talking about deaths. That's just directly from drownings, um, injury, that kind of thing. If you take all of the public health hazards into account, um, as a public health reports jour- um, journal study did. Uh, This year, Uh or I think last year, I'm sorry. Um, anywhere between seventeen hundred and thirty-six and twenty-eight hundred and eighty-nine people die in Appalachia each year as a result of the coal mining industry there. Right. So there is a lot of death, but there's also a lot of potential death too. Sickness. Yeah. We we talked about Buffalo Creek where the um slurry uh dam, the slurry pond dam broke and killed one hundred and twenty-five people. That was, um, 130 million gallons of coal slurry, right? Yeah. Killed 125 people. There is a place, um, called Marsh Fork, El- Marsh Fork Elementary
2: School. Yeah, I saw a documentary on the school.
1: So Marsh Fork has, um, I believe, uh, 200 something students going yeah. there every day. And just above the elementary school, there is a coal slurry pond. Above it. Yeah. On the mountainside. That holds 3 billion gallons of coal sludge.
2: Yeah, and there's a whole operation. There's a silo 300 feet from the school.
1: Right. So rather than the 132 million gallons, we're talking about 3 billion gallons poised behind an earthen dam right above an elementary school. So there's a lot of potential for a disaster as well.
2: Right. Yeah, that's uh, Massey Energy. That's one of the bigger coal companies in the United States.
1: You might remember Massey's name by um, the, the upper big branch mine explosion that happened uh, about a year ago from two days ago. Oh, yeah. It was April 5th, 2010. Right. Um, that that explosion killed 29 miners uh, and leaving three others trapped. Um, so Massey is, like you said, big in a traditional mining, uh, surface mining, and regulation. Actually, one of their former executives was named a um, deputy energy secretary for fossil fuels uh, a couple of years back.
2: That's right. President Bush uh, named appointed uh, what was his name?
1: Uh, his name was Stanley Subaleski. He was uh, appointed in um, 2007,
2: right. December 2007 to the Department of Energy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, back to Marsh uh, Fork Elementary School. Uh, that that actually one of the documentaries I saw yesterday was on that school specifically. Yeah. And uh West Virginia activist Bo Webb, he's one of the leading activists on this cause, found that 80% of the parents are saying that their children are coming home from school with a variety of illnesses like uh, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, uh, shortness of breath, wheezing, asthma, um, long-term effects, kidney damage. There's been a lot of kidney damage in that area. Uh, liver damage, spleen failure, bone damage, and cancer of the digest- uh, digestive tract. And... um, Bo has uh actually it wasn't Bo but one of the other activists there they were trying to raise money in this documentary to build a new school not near you know not 300 feet away from a coal mining operation and they were trying to raise it uh by donating pennies and they in the documentary they marched uh and had a rally at the governor's uh office in west virginia and it was hardcore man it was hard to watch like Literally, the governor gave him a minute and he's glad handing and talking to people. And, you know, they, they bring out this little girl from the school and he's like, well, what are you interested in? And you sure are cute. And what do you want to be when you grow up? And basically the kid's just like, I don't want to live under a coal mine and I don't want to be sick anymore. And they called this guy out, uh, the governor out big time. And it was really one of those uncomfortable scenes to watch when politics gets, when it's clear that this guy has no answer. And the big coal has their lobbyists that are, you know, on the on the side of, you know, big coal mining, and it was it was just very uncomfortable and disturbing to watch. Yep. But you should watch it nonetheless. And that
1: was uh, that was Marsh Creek is in West Virginia, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's in Rock Creek. I see. Um, Chuck, one of the reasons why the governor would have been embarrassed or um, felt awkward is because there is a ton of money at stake here. That one um, public health reports journal study yeah. that, that said you know, between um, 1,700 and 2,900 people die each year from coal mining, um, it was an economics paper, really, and it said that um, the coal industry generates about $8 billion in economic contribution to Appalachia every year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a lot. It's like, okay. Can't ignore wait, that. Sure. You know, no, you can't. That's a lot of money spent on that area. The problem is, is, this same paper, using the same model, figured out that, um, it costs about $42 billion in healthcare costs and the cost of
2: life. So that's the big picture. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you're actually losing. And you can just look at, you know, the poverty in Appalachia and see, oh, well, these people who are literally next to these mines are not benefiting from this at all.
2: Right. And the, uh, there's another stat. Activists will point out that only about four or five percent of our, of our nation's coal energy comes from mountaintop removal mining. So it's not like, oh, you know, like eighty percent of the coal that we use comes from this practice. So right. we really, really need it. Uh, they will tell you that conservation alone, we could save an average of twenty percent of our energy demands, which far outweighs, you know, by what, four or five times the five percent that we're using.
1: Right. I've seen up to ten percent, um, Comes from strip mining or from mountaintop removal mining. Oh, really? But that's being used pretty greedily because we, um, the United States gets about 50% of its electricity. I think in 2009 it got 45% of its electricity from coal. So usually it's around 50%.
2: Yeah, and we're exporting coal too. Coal is an important part of our energy plan. Yeah. Can't ignore that. Yeah. So where does that leave us, Chuck? Well, there's a couple of things, uh, Josh. One reason that I wanted to do this show and that you got on board and we're way behind it too is because. Oh no, I'm, I'm just doing this for you. <laughs> is because this is a problem that affects poor rural people for the most part. People in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Tennessee now. And they don't have the same voice that, uh, other folks do. Um, One of the leading, uh, I think it was Bo Webb again, said, if this, this wouldn't happen in New England, um, that biggest environmental disaster west of the, or east of the Mississippi River happened and the New York Times didn't report about it for like four months. So it's, and I, I guess a lot of the listeners out there probably looked at the title, what is mountaintop removal coal mining and said, yeah, what is that? I've never heard of it, but we've all heard of the Valdez. We heard about the, you know, all these disasters obviously need attention. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to things like oil spills, but it gets a lot more attention when it's on the uh, Gulf of Florida with Destin and Seaside right there than it does in the rural mountains of West Virginia. Yeah. So somebody needs to be talking about this, and a lot of people are. And another problem is the coal lobby and the fact that companies can donate uh, money to uh, political campaigns and get in the hip pockets of politicians and... Favors are paid back, and it's the same old story with you know big industry like this. It's just sad to see it happening.
1: Well, it is. It's a big. It's a it, there's a big um, debate going on right now about just how much the EPA should have teeth in regards to mountaintop removal mining, right?
2: Yeah, and the EPA's new chief is uh, pretty progressive and pretty hardcore, and not a friend of big business. And she is making some waves. Um coal miners are uh against these actions. You're talking about Lisa Jackson? Yeah. Okay. And uh she's a bulldog. I read the Rolling Stone interview on on her and she's she said her job is just to 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 look out for the environment. That that's the only thing she wants to do. And you know, if you're in her way, she's gonna try and knock you down.
1: Well we'll see, but that's still not enough um for a lot of people. I think there the general consensus among activists and probably people who live in school buses on the side of a mountain nearby, a mountaintop removal um, operation, uh, is that it should be banned outright. Yeah? That that process, yeah. not mining those particular sites, but that that um, type of mining, that method of mining should just be completely outlawed.
2: Yeah, I mean, most of these permits were issued during the Clinton and Bush administrations, uh, second Bush, obviously. And there were certain uh, key provisions to the Clean Water Act that were rewritten, uh to reclassify waste associated with strip mining as benign fill material. Yeah. A federal judge rejected that. Um but then that change was upheld in two thousand three by uh uh fourth circuit court judge. And then Obama comes in and people said, All right, dude, you're you're the environmental guy. Get rid of this altogether in the first one hundred days. Didn't happen. But Obama has introduced um Stricter guidelines now, and the EPA has on to curtail mountaintop mining, uh, hailed by certain environmentalists. But if you talk to Bo Webb, he'll say, that ain't enough, brother. He's like, you got to outlaw mountaintop removal mining, period. And anything less than that is just playing into the hands of big coal.
1: It's it's surprising that it has been allowed to go on. I mean, the idea of blowing the top of a mountain then pushing it into the valley below, covering up the stream, and then introducing coal slurry to this local environment – um, in an age where we, you know, there's such a thing as Earth Day, and people are like, "I will never use a a paper or a plastic bag. I use my own that I bought and brought from home." That this is going on is um, it's it's startling.
2: Yeah. Well, um, last and uh, you know, I said that there were some efforts by the Obama administration to curtail this. Um, last Thursday, this is just over the wire today. Um, two senators from Kentucky. Uh, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul introduced a bill trying to restrict the EPA from clamping down on it, uh, giving the EPA a 60-day deadline to veto Clean Water Act permits issued by the Corps of Engineers. And um, activists are saying, "Yeah, this is tricky." So they put in that 60-day thing. Everyone knows nothing in the government can happen in 60 days, so it's sort of a uh, a facade. Uh red herring. A red herring. Uh, the bill would also prevent the EPA from retroactively vetoing permits. So um that was uh, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. And Rand Paul from Kentucky, if you're from Kentucky, you know all about uh, your senators, in 2010 <laughs> said, like, you don't need me to tell you about this guy. Uh, in 2010, he said in an interview, quote, I think they should name it something better. Uh, the top ends up flatter, but we're not talking about Mount Everest. We're talking about these knobby little hills that are everywhere out here. I don't think anyone's going to be missing a hill or two here and there. And that was uh, Rand Paul, yeah, straight from the horse's mouth.
1: And Chuck, I think that you know as well as I, people are going to be like, "You guys are getting political. Stop being political." And I, I just, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to frame a response to that because this, is, this is um, super pol- political. It's above politics. It's basically incredibly well financed. Um, industrial interests and average people who have no money. That kind of... um, Dying. Dying. And getting sick. That's not political. That's not the right or the left. That's right or wrong, basically. Yeah.
2: Well said, sir. Thanks. We're talking about um, an EPA study. It's estimated 400,000 acres have been wiped out. And like we said, um, between 700 and 1,000 miles of stream. And that was... in. Those are the 2001 numbers, so it's a lot higher by then. Well, do you want to talk to Ben Soli? I do. I'm looking to see if I have anything else. Oh, you know what? We should plug a couple of things. Um, Jonathan Franzen's new novel, Freedom. It's a big subplot, Mountaintop Removal Mining. Yeah, I heard. Uh, The TV show, Justified. Have you ever seen it? No. It's awesome. Timothy Oliphant. Season 2 has a big subplot on Mountaintop Removal Mining. And uh, all these things, you know, raise awareness on certain levels. The Wild Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. <laughs> What's that? It's a documentary,
1: you know, The Dancing Outlaw? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Jeffco. it's a follow-up to Jeffco. that. It's his family. And they are crazy. And it's actually produced by Johnny Knoxville's production company. Oh, really? Really, it's worth seeing.
2: So um Ben will be in here in a second to give us some more organizations. But if you want to uh, just look into this a little more, there are three places I can uh, recommend you go. One is Ilovemountains.org. Great that's place to start. Uh, there's a group called the Mountain Justice Summer.
1: They're, they are well organized. I think they're the oldest one.
2: Yeah, that's mountainjusticesummer.org and then um, Appalachian Voices, appvoices.org. Go to any of those websites, look up some pictures, do your own research. See if it matters to you. Or summer's coming up, and if you
1: want to go join a protest, they have them all over Appalachia. Yeah. If you've ever wanted to see a person with dreadlocks, in working in conjunction with the hillbilly, yeah. this is the place to go. <laughs> That's a good point. So Chuck, um, let's uh, let's pause a second here while we bring Ben Soli in. Okay.
2: So, we are back. It seemed like a brief second to you, but it was about 10 minutes to us. At least. Something like that. Yeah. And in the studio for our first ever musical guest, we have Mr. Ben Lee. Welcome, Ben. Hello, fellas. Ben is a singer, a songwriter, yeah. and a cellist. Check. He is a Kentucky native. Right. And he is a coal, uh, a mountaintop removal coal mining activist. And in 2010, Ben, you put out an album on the sub-pop label produced by Mr. Jim James of My Morning Jacket. It's true. With Daniel Martin Moore, called "Dear Companion," and it was a. Do you call it a concept album or just a theme album?
3: Mm, that's a good question. Um, huh. Some folks referred to it as a protest album. Okay. Some folks referred to it as a um, album of of um, a, an issues based album, and we just kind of looked at it as a, a tribute album to a really beautiful part of the country. Okay. And uh, bringing that part of the country and that sound and kind of our heritage as Kentucky musicians into like the urban context and mixing all that stuff up.
2: Well, since that was one of my questions anyway, just tell us a little bit more about that project. I know uh, 100% of the proceeds went to ilovemountains.org?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, all of the proceeds that we would have gotten as artists. Right, sure. Yeah, and in the record world, you know, there's you get a portion of it from record sales. There's no such thing as <laughs> <artists>. <laughs> so <laughs> so a free uh, album. 1% <laughs> went to
1: ilovemountains.org? <laughs> no,
3: actually, it was like, I mean, to be specific, it was 13-point-something percent. The, the portion that we would have gotten as artists. Right. So we just donated that. That's great. To uh, App Voices. Um, and mostly because they run an amazing website and called ilovemountains.org. And the goal of the record was not to, like, protest anything or, you know, necessarily pick a side. It was more to, like, raise awareness, be right. a catalyst for conversation. That's what this. we just did. Exactly. So um, in that way, we wanted to support the thing that was we felt like was one of the best things for a national conversation, which was the website where people can go and find out how they're involved and what to do
1: how did you get into um where did your desire to raise awareness about
3: mtr come from Um, it's a good question i think i think it all started with um an author that read a story and this guy's name is silas house Mm -hmm. he's a well-known author there in the kentucky central part of america uh, region he's amazing writer, and he came and read on a, on a show that I was doing, this you know, beautiful entry about a, a lady who had posted herself up on this mountain site and she was not going to allow the machines to kind of rip up the land which had been in her family for years and years. And that, you know, it was a, uh, you know, it had a lot of emotion and energy in the writing that kind of spawned the the thought of it and then more and more research, I was like, wow, how can this actually be going on in America? How can people actually uh, have to live without Basically, a lot of their civil rights—to have yeah. like clean water, to right. be protected by their police—you know—all these things. And so, uh, I wanted to help raise awareness for it. But I'm a musician. What do you do? Like, how much can a song really change anything? Is uh, always one of these big dilemmas, especially hey, a song of protest.
1: Have you heard Europe's Final Countdown? Mm-mm. That changed everything <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah,
3: you know the song.
0: Mm.
1: I don't, <laughs> I don't don't actually. Oh, don't. we're gonna play <laughs> it for that's you. Fair. I'm gonna buy you that MP3 as a matter of fact. Oh, that's sweet. Thank
2: you. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about Dear Companion and uh, your work with Daniel Martin Moore and Jim James and Sub Pop and how that was packaged. I know that was very unique.
3: It is unique, and Sub Pop is a really amazing record label for even taking the time to like look at putting this thing out. Right. And I think a big big part of that is because they started as a label that was based in a community, like they started you know, putting out the punk rock music of Seattle. Uh And they grew big and they put out music and everything now. But uh, this is their way of reaching into a different community and being part of a conversation. And um, in a lot of ways, folk music kind of of has that punk, like, against the, you know, against the common thing. Uh, The establishment. Against the establishment. (laughs) The man. The man. The man, whatever, uh, the industry. And so... I think this really resonated with them so they took the time and energy to put it out working with daniel martin moore was uh he's a tall handsome crooner sort of fella he is he is and he uh, also lives in kentucky and before we even met he was very active in raising awareness about mountaintop removal with a song called fly rock blues and fly rock kind of describes the materials that fly off into the air when they yeah, explode the out Yeah, we talked a bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. I mean, sometimes boulders as big as houses go flying hundreds of yards. I mean, it's an amazing, powerful, explosive force and land in places way outside the, the digging zone. Right. So um, that in song inspired me to work with him on this uh, project. And then Jim James came on board... Also Kentucky native, also Kentucky native, um, and he had done a lot of work with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, an organization there in Kentucky, and uh, he just was a great voice for being able to take these influences of Appalachia, take our own songwriting, and also bring them in with kind of the relevant indie rock and right. this kind of sound that is associated with him and my morning jacket
2: and uh, quickly on the
3: packaging too um there was was there a map that was included or there's a there's a beautiful picture of um, Appalachia. And, okay. And th- what's unique about the picture and the reason that we chose it is not it's not some, you know, long shot landscape of the rolling mountains, old Appalachian fog. It's it's not this idealized thing. It's simply a valley. It's this beautiful, pristine valley. And that's really what the whole contention behind this is. It's not really the absence of the mountaintops that causes so much destruction. It's the filling in and right. destruction of the valleys. These are the places that collect our water, the headwaters that come down not only to these Appalachian communities, but also some of our major cities on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And those waters are being polluted. And the idea that we all live downstream from those um, is a really provocative and, and an idea that we're all in this together. This is one big community from the gr- groundwater being polluted to the electricity that runs these light bulbs, like right. we're all kind of participating in this thing. And it's very easy when we're participating in it, turning on a light switch or charging our phone to miss the idea, not that a mountain is blowing up. That's too abstract. That's too out there. The idea that people have to live with, um, that people make this power. Right. That people have to deal with the coal trucks. You know, tearing up the roads. People have to deal with the dust in the air and the shaking ground. People have to deal with the loss of land values. Like, there are people that are living um, very hard lives to make sure that we have these things. And I think, from a positive standpoint, we need to appreciate that more. Right. Not just protest them, not point our fingers and look at them and say, look at those poor people, but say thank you in a lot of ways. And that's what we tried to do with your companion, was to say thank you celebrate appalachia as a landscape Mm -hmm. as part of our american heritage you know everything from the the fiddler chop you know the man beside his cabin chopping wood or the fiddler playing while the guy's dancing like these american things that have been turned into musicals and shows they all stem from these those pioneers that settled in these mountains and i and i just think it's such a huge part of our heritage as americans and it's just disappearing as these communities, they, just, they struggle to survive underneath the, the climate of things being exploded and land being devalued and water being um, polluted. It's hard for them to survive, and it's hard for communities to to even keep their footing when all that's happening. So we're losing part of our American heritage, and that's how it ties in with me as a musician. That's how I found it tied in with me as a musician. Awesome. And I want to point
2: out, Ben is a guy who walks the walk. He did a, an entire tour... Was it last year, on your bicycle?
3: Well, yeah, we've done three tours by bicycle now. (laughs) I don't know
2: how many people out there have ever tried to carry a cello (laughs) on a bicycle, but this guy does it from town to town.
3: Believe it or not, there's four or five cellists out there in the world that are are carrying their cellos on bicycles. It's something about, you know, people say cellists are extreme people. I don't think that. (laughs) (laughs) But I just really got into this idea of not being sustainable or being green Slowing down. Right. The idea that I wanted to be more involved in these communities. I felt this, this un- unsettling feeling that I was coming through these places, putting on a show, asking people to buy the music, and then moving on to the next. Right. Driving eight to ten hours the next day sometimes to get to some distant community where a promoter was willing to put on, put up money to put on a show. It felt like a little bit of a fleecing thing uh-huh. and, and somewhat dishonest in a lot of ways. It wasn't real and people romanticized it, but it wasn't. Really real. So the idea of getting on a bicycle, slowing down, not being able to roll up our windows or just stay on the interstate and zoom past the place, we had to really ride through each community and be a part of their town for at least a little bit. Yeah, you notice, I've been riding my bike lately
2: just for exercise, and it's amazing how much more you notice Mm -hmm. just by walking or riding a bike than
3: when you're zipping past it in a car. The smells, the Mm -hmm. condition of the road is a big one. Um, The habits and nature of other drivers out there you notice how amazing it is that we have thousands and thousands of pounds of machinery that we can just hurdle down the highway i mean for for better or worse you just kind of notice what a what an extreme action that is it feel we're so used to it yeah but the idea that we can hop on a highway and just push this machine very heavy big machine float it down the highway it, you know it's kind of like you know arthur c clark or something it's just right. out
2: there you don't take things for granted, my friend. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Well,
2: uh, before we get uh, involved with the music. Yeah, we... do you mind sticking around and playing us a song? I would love to.
3: Okay, good. We, yeah. uh, we plug ilovemountains.org. Is that a good place for people to start? It's a great place for people to start, especially because you can. Uh, they have a tool on there where you can plug in your zip code uh-huh. and see what portion of your power is coming from coal. Oh, fantastic. Cool. And not only that, you can see where the, that coal is coming from. Yeah, it's coal. a great website, ilovemountains.org. It's a cool, not coal. That's cool. cool.
2: (laughs) So the song we're going to hear is called Electrified, and it is from Mr. Solis' forthcoming album, which should be dropping right now, May Mm -hmm. 10th. Yeah. And it's called Inclusions. So let's hear it. The
0: trees are electrified. The streets are electrified. Your ears are electrified, my voice is electrified. Your heart is unsteady, they can make it beat time. Your mind is confused, it will be clarified. You're old-fashioned, you will be modernized. Everything is electrified, everything is electrified. In the jungle, use the satellites. If you're broke in the city, sneak on the bus line. You lost your job because it was mechanized. They said we have to compete when the market's globalized. Everything is electrified. Everything is electrified. Everything is electrified. Everything is electrified. I- My bare hands touch the base of your spine. Feel you shudder and close your eyes. Move like a swallow, and I'm hypnotized. Everything's electrified. Everything's electrified. Everything's electrified. Everything. are heroes, others may be vilified, assess your losses, learn to diversify, find your higher calling and evangelize, build your congregation, now you're televised, everything's electrified, everything is electrified, yes, everything's electrified, everything is electrified.
2: Man, that was awesome. That was very cool. So cool. And those, you know, you heard clapping. I have people all over the office here that wanted to come in and here, mm-hmm. obviously.
1: Yeah, I have something else.
2: Uh, so you can see Ben Soli on tour. He's on tour right now. And he is all over the place. I'm looking. Boston, New York, Philly, Chicago, St. Louis. I mean, back through Kentucky, down through the south. Go see Ben Soli on tour through the end of uh, June. You can find that at his website. Yeah,
1: You can also learn all about mining and energy by typing either one of those words in the search bar at which does not trigger listener mail this time. Instead, you shoot us an email if you want to drop us a line. Yeah, and hey, if you go see Benso Leon tour, go up to him and uh, talk to him. He's a very nice guy. And yep. Tell him that your buddies with us. He's a very good guy. Uh, anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast